Hello everyone, welcome back to the legends of Breton or Brittany, the French influence. The country now began to flourish because of the many innovations introduced into it by the wisdom of its French rulers. A new way of life was adopted by the governing classes, among whom French manners and fashions became the rule. But the people at large retained their ancient customs, language and dress. Nor have they ever abandoned them, at least in Lower Brittany. On the death of John III, this was 1341, the peace of the Duchy was once more broken by a war of succession. John had no love for his half-brother, John of Montfort, and bequeathed the ducal coronet to his niece, Joan of Pendrevere, wife of Charles of Bleu, nephew of Philip. Yes, I think it's Philip the Sixth of France. This precipitated a conflict between the rival parties, which led to years of bitter strife. The War of Two Jones. Just as two women, Fredegonda and Brunhilde swayed the fortunes of Neustria and Austria, or I suppose back then it was Austrasia, in Merovingian times, and Mary and Elizabeth, those of England and Scotland at a later day, so did two heroines arise to uphold the banners of either party in the civil strife, which now convulsed the Breton land. England took the side of Montfort, and the French, that of Charles. Almost at the outset, 1342, John of Montfort was taken prisoner, but his heroic wife, Joan of Flanders, grasped the leadership of affairs and carried on a relentless war against her husband's enemies. After five years of fighting in 1347, and two years subsequent to the death of her lord, whose health had given way after his imprisonment, she captured her foe, her arch-foe, Charles of Blois himself, at the Battle of La Roche d'Arienne on the Jordi. In this encounter, she had the assistance of a certain Sir Thomas Dagworth and an English force. Three times was Charles rescued, and thrice was he retaken, until, bleeding from eighteen wounds, he was compelled to surrender. He was sent to London, where he was confined in the Tower for nine years. Meanwhile, his wife Joan, imitating her rival and namesake, in turn threw her energies into the strife. But another victory for the Montfort party was gained at Moron in 1352 on the release of Charles of Bleu. In 1356, he renewed hostilities with the help of the famous Bertrand du Gouchelin. Very interesting indeed. That's another Joan that um, definitely should be looked at in history if you're interested. As my members listening to this will know, we are doing Joan of Arc right now because this is when I'm actually recording. This is when we're doing Joan of Arc, probably two years ago now. But the point is, that's another Joan. (laughs) So, Bertrand du Gouchelin said, apparently, C, 1320 to 80 is the date. Constable of France, 
devised with Bayard the Fearless, the crown of medieval French chivalry, as the mighty leader of men, a great soldier and a blameless knight. He was born of an ancient family who were in somewhat straitened circumstances, and in childhood was the object of aversion to his parents because of his ugliness. One night, his mother dreamt that she was in possession of a casket containing portraits of herself and her lord, on one side of which were set nine precious stones of great beauty, encircling a rough and polished pebble. In a dream, she carried the casket to Lapidary and asked him to take out the rough stone as unworthy of such goodly company, but he advised her to allow it to remain, and afterward it shone forth more brilliantly than the lustrous gems. The latest superiority of Bertrand over her nine other children fulfilled the mother's dream, or prophecy, shall we say. At the tournament, which was held at Rennes, this was in 1338, to celebrate the marriage of Charles the Bleu with Jean of Pentrevere, young Bertrand, at that time, only some 18 years old, unhorsed the most famous competitors. During the war between Bleu and Montfort, he gathered around him a band of adventures and fought on the side of Charles V, doing more despite the forces of Montfort and his ally of England. Du Gouchelin's name lives in Breton legend as Guesclin, perhaps the original form, and approximating to that on his tomb at Saint-Denis, where he lies at the feet of Charles V of France. In this inscription it is spelt Messiah Bertram du Gouacui, perhaps a French rendering of the Breton pronunciation. Not a few legendary ballads which recount the exploits of this manly and romantic figure remain in Breton language, and I have made a free translation of the following, as it is perhaps the most interesting of the number. And this is how it goes. The Ward of Du Gouchelin Trogoff's strong tower in English hands has been this many a year, rising above its subject lands and held in hate and fear. That rosy gleam upon the sword is not the sun's last kiss. It is the blood of an English lord who ruled the land amiss. O sweetest daughter of my heart, my little Marguerite, Come, carry me the midday milk to those who bind the wheat. O gentle mother, spare me this, the castle I must pass, where wicked Roger takes a kiss from every country lass. O fie, my daughter, fie on thee, the seigneur would not glance on such a chit of low degree, when all the dames in France are for his choosing, mother mine. I bow unto your word, mine eyes will ne'er behold you more. God keep you in his guard. Young Roger stood upon the tower of Trogoff's grey chateau. Beneath his bent brows did he lower upon the scene below. Come hither quickly, little page, come hither to my knee. Can't spy a maid of tender age, ha, she must pay my fee. Fair Marguerite tripped swiftly by beneath the castle's shade, when villain Roger, drawing nigh, still softly on the maid. 
He seizes on the milking pail, she bears upon her head. The snow-white flood she must bewail, for all the milk is shed. I cry not, pretty sister mine, there's plenty and to spare, of milk and eck of good red wine within my castle there. I feast with me or pluck a rose within my pleasant garth, or stroll beside your brook which flows in brawling sylvian moth. No feast, no flowers, no evening hair, I wish, I do entreat. Fair Signor, let me now repair to those who bind the wheat. Nay, damsel, fill the milking pail, the dairy stands but here. Ah, foolish sweeting, wherefore quail, for thou hast naught to fear. The cask gates behind her clothes, and all is fair within. Above her head the apple glows, the symbol of our sin. O Seigneur, lend thy dagger keen, the time may cut this fruit. He smiles, and with a courteous mien, he draws the bright blade out. The end. (laughs) That's a very interesting poem indeed. When we come back, we're going to look at the death of Marguerite, of course, in the castle of Throgoff. She has just obviously gone to the castle, but the next part is her death. But he does start with a very nice poem indeed. So at least we have more poems, guys. Very interested to read about the history. You know, I love history. Absolutely love history. I really do. Thank you for listening and many blessings. <laughs>